right, so yeah, this is a little bit, this is a bit, bit, bit of an experiment, but this is definitely something that Ryan and I have been talking about doing for a while, which is uh, just having uh, these office hours, which is where we get to talk to you guys and where you guys ask some of your questions. You guys are the premier bankless content consumers, and so you guys are the biggest signal for some of the questions that me and Ryan leave unaddressed. So we want to do these things. Uh, the idea is we do these things on the last Friday of every month. Um, you might notice that this is not the last Friday of November, uh, but that is because of the holiday season. Uh, and then the same thing is going to repeat itself for uh, next uh, next in, in December because of uh, holidays as then as well. But then we will get into a regular cadence of doing this on the last Friday of every single month. So you guys can uh, count on that going on here. Uh, so we have a number of questions lined up before I get into those. Uh, Ryan, do you have anything you want to say? No, it was great, guys. We're really excited to do this. This community is uh, just fantastic, and uh, you guys are our people. So you know, thanks for thanks for joining. Thanks for these questions. One last thing to add on the logistics side of things. I think we are planning to actually publish this. It'll be pretty raw, but we'll we'll plan to publish this as recording to the Bankless Premium podcast feed. So um, you know, if you if you're subscribed to that. You will be able to access these um, after uh, after after we do it. I don't know when we'll get that out. Sometime next week, hopefully. But uh, that'll be available for you too. So I think that's it. The, the other thing I guess I would say is, David, I have not reviewed any of these questions. And, like, <laughs> David knows me, and like I like to prepare for things, you know, like agendas and all of these things. Uh, and uh, that has not happened for this, which is totally fine. I think that's exactly what the way it should be. Do not know what the questions are, have not prepared, so you're going to get our raw, unfiltered responses on all of these. And guys, just because we are recording this to go out onto the premium feed, I am going to turn into a bit of a Nazi when it comes to audio quality. Uh, so if I notice that people are hot micing, I'm going to mute you, and that is unfortunate for you because you can't unmute yourself that way. So please do know that if I pick up background noise on you, I will be muting you to preserve audio quality. Uh, somebody definitely needs to get muted right now. Uh, and if I find that person, that person okay. will receive that. Okay. All right. So let's go and uh, head and uh, uh, go with some of our first questions. Some people put their questions into chat. And so thank you for doing that. Uh, there's a number of people that we want to see if they are here so they can ask their question uh, directly. Sorry if I butcher your Discord screen name. Uh, L. Cabrano, Zero X Al, PJ Spooky, uh, Boogie, Jay Ravello, Jake and Steak, Unicorn Droppings. If any of you guys are here, uh, want to just hop on to the unmute section of this uh, chat and ask your question. Or I can just go ahead and read it out. Hearing none, I'm going to go ahead and just read it out. Okay, so this one is from PJ. Hi, Ryan and David. First of all, thank you for your high-quality podcast with great speakers and questions. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you for appreciating it. My question relates to the monetary policy of Ethereum. I get that EIP-1559 together with proof of stake will make ETH less or more scarce and more valuable. Deflationary is the term used in the ultrasound money meme. However, I'm not 100% convinced that having a deflationary asset is a plus given that ETH is, uh, for example, used as a currency to pay for NFTs. Like in nation states, having a deflationary currency will make people postpone their purchases. I get that deflation aspect is positive if you buy ETH as an investment, but is not necessarily the case if you consume digital assets. Or the next stage of the evolution could be that people buy NFTs with stable coins in the future instead of ETH. Many thanks for your insight. Uh, Peter Jan, greetings from Belgium. Uh, Ryan, do you want to take this one? 
Yeah, it's a super great question, PJ. Yeah, like, hello. Yeah, thanks hello, for sorry that. to interrupt. Oh, hey, PJ, how's it going? Yeah, this is uh, Peter Jan. Hello. Hey, PJ. Yeah, thanks for asking the question. I just joined, I just joined the call. So, um, yeah, thanks for asking it and uh, uh, happy to hear answers. Well, thanks, man. I think it's a great question. And um, yeah, t I guess I'll start with a, a couple of things. Um, I, I, I think generally the deflationary aspect of a money uh, can can be a negative thing for the reasons um, that you stated, right? Stated. So like um, we, we if you when you have a deflationary money system, things become more scarce, people hold, it's not necessarily conducive to like monetary growth, right? I guess I think there's a difference. I, I guess I would say a few things. I think there's a difference in when we say ETH is money, what ETH is actually trying to be. Um, you know, the properties of money are store value, medium of exchange, unit of account, right? I think the, the, the property of um, store of value is going to be the, the, the strongest property of ETH as money. Um, and so the way it could actually work is not that ETH would be the unit of account and medium of exchange in the Ethereum economy, but certainly that it would remain the store of value, the, the pristine collateral, um, the economic bandwidth uh, for DeFi. And the, the way that could take shape and take form is imagine ETH backing some other asset on top of Ethereum. I think we first started to see this all the way back in like 2017 uh, with, um, with DAI, which is like mm -hmm. the first decentralized stablecoin. And DAI at that time was called Psi and it was based, you know, completely on Ether as money, right? So like you needed the uh, value of Ether to be high in order to produce DAI. And in some ways, DAI was a more, it was a superior money because it was not inflationary. It sort of, you know, you know, tracked the dollar. So I guess it was somewhat inflationary. Uh, it was not deflationary and it held its stability uh, in a better way, right? So like there were some downsides, you know, DAI has some uh, centralization vectors, particularly when you add other collateral sources. Um, but there are also assets like Rye, for instance, which are uh, completely based on uh, on ETH, and that's from you know Reflexor Labs. And so I think when you have a strong growing ETH, and by growing I mean like high in terms of market cap and and high in terms of liquidity and and continuing in that direction, then you can start to create uh, other monies on top of that ETH. Mm -hmm. And this is not like. This is not uh, too dissimilar from what we've seen in uh, money systems in the past, right? So like gold used to be the, um, the store of value asset, the collateral asset that backed a lot of nation state currencies. Um, you know, certainly has been the case in like England and, and uh, certainly in the US. Uh, and it was not an ideal money for a lot of reasons, like, you know, transportation, but, but also because it, you know, it's not very deflation, it's not very you know, inflationary, but you can, you can create a, a dollar uh, or a, a pound on top of um, a store of value asset hey, hey, like hey, a gold. Oliver? Oliver? No. I think someone needs to be muted there, David, if yep, you got that. Yep, yep they're dead. Um, yeah, so, you know, that would be the, um, uh, the first thing I'd say about that. Um, mm -hmm. But I think I think maybe that addresses uh, part of your question. Let me see if I'm I think I think off. I'll I can add on to Could that a little that bit. Game. Where yeah. it, previously we've had the, there's like this you know uh, uh, allergy for that economists have to like deflation and for all the reasons that that you've described. 
but the the paradigm is very very different versus when the, uh, inside of a nation state versus on crypto on ethereum on ethereum there are thousands and thousands of currencies that you can choose from and mm -hmm. inside of a nation state there's just one and so when that one currency becomes highly deflationary that definitely starts impacting the the local economy right mm -hmm. because there's only one currency but when you create an ecosystem where you have many 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 currencies there's it stops having such a strong impact around the local economy around it because of the the ability to choose and so ether the actually you can get the best of both worlds you can have inflating currencies and deflating currencies in the same spot and that to mm -hmm. me uh just balance every everything uh, balances everything out a little bit and allows for ether to become maximally deflationary which also adds in maximum security to ethereum while also incentivizing commerce to happen in stable coins stable coin velocity is probably linked somehow very loosely to ether deflation the more ether becomes valuable the higher the the rate of uh stable coin velocity there probably is yeah mm -hmm. i i remember the the other thing i was going to say on this to pj which is basically like so um decentralization is the uh the thing that we're we're kind of aiming for right with uh with a bitcoin or with an ether or with any monetary system and that means it has to be adopted from the bottom up it's so like from the people up it, it doesn't have the benefit of a nation state currency like a fiat where like from the top down they get to dictate yeah when you go to the store you have to you have to pay for things in dollars and your tax system is going to be you know dollars and we're going to demand taxes from you in dollars that's top down you have that luxury when you're doing a you know a centralized currency and it's top down but when it's decentralized you have to give people a reason to buy it and hold it it's a bottom-up movement and just picture like i think hasu pointed this out at uh, one point in time or i really like the point so picture a um a low inflation or deflationary uh currency that's trying to money that's trying to get adopted from the bottom up versus one that has some inflation you know let's say five percent or ten percent or e even two percent which one are individuals going to prefer to hold well, they're going to want to hold the most deflationary or like, you know, fixed supply currency. Possible. And so at the end of the day, the most deflationary currency is kind of going to win that that battle. From a game theory perspective. So if you told me you're going to duplicate the Ethereum system, but the only difference is it's going to have like, you know, 5% or 10% inflation. You said that about Bitcoin, right? It's like, let's take Bitcoin, but we'll, we'll do five. Uh, percent or ten percent. Well, that's going to lose out against the real Bitcoin. Why? Because people are going to prefer holding the uh, the, def the more deflationary asset. And so I mm -hmm. think, game theoretically, if we're talking about like a currency rising from the bottom up, it has to be low supply or uh, even you know in ETH's case potentially uh, deflationary. Is it mm -hmm. is that helpful at all? Any follow ups to that? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's very helpful. And, and thanks also for the nuances in, in your answers. Um, actually, the reason why I asked the question is because when I buy NFTs, I really don't like the fact that I have to pay them in ETH. Actually, right. I don't want to spend ETH to buy NFTs. I mean, if it's for small amounts, I don't care. But, you know, when you buy an NFT for one ETH, for example... I'd rather, you know, pay it in DAI or, or any other uh, stable coin, but it's just not possible. I mean, for some NFTs it is, but for the majority of the NFTs it's not possible. And so I'm actually wondering, I'm hoping that 
in the in the near future that may change and that you know um sellers are open to to receive other kind of currencies than eth um yeah yeah this this is like the inevitable just like catch 22 of these systems mm -hmm. i i think like th this is going to be a property of the early days of ethereum much more than it will be in the late days of ethereum when the growth so much growth happens in the first you know the first 10 percent of something's lifetime especially in crypto right uh mm -hmm. and so while we are in like ether literally turning itself into ultrasound money which it's not yet right like we still have some of these like uh, milestones to get to over time there's the the it just won't be able to appreciate as much as other things just because they already have captured that much of appreciation so this is in my mind kind of a short-term problem yeah mm -hmm, and I, mm -hmm. I i agree with you pj i hate spending my eth right <laughs> yeah. we used to say something like you know hold your eth spend your die Right? Right. Exactly. Kind of a slogan. Yeah. And I think that's that's true. But the interesting thing about that slogan is like, well, die is actually, at least it used to be more, is actually ETH. Only it's just a synthetic version of ETH that's mm -hmm. um, you know stabilized, right? Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. that that is uh, a possible future on Ethereum. It's like, you know, ETH is money, but it's not money that you want to spend, right? It's like a store of value type of money. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You want to hold it. You want to stake it. You don't want to spend it. Spend something like die. So totally get that point. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, guys. Hey, thank you, PJ. I appreciate Thanks for the question, PJ. Uh, again, sorry if I butcher this name. El Cabrono, are you here? Do you, do you want to ask your question? Uh, we also have Spooky Boogie, Jake and Steak. Any of you guys are here? and want to unmute and you can ask your guys this question. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> hey, uh, Jake and Steak here. What up, Jake and Steak? Um, Thanks for uh, thanks for everything you guys do. I appreciate the podcast and the blogs and stuff. Um, that's great. Um, so I guess my question is, what are the differences between Validium's volitions and data availability chains? Um, I guess like an example would be like Polygon Avail. And what role do you see them playing in a modular Ethereum, a, a modular blockchain world? Yeah, this is we, me and Ryan were talking about like, oh my god, are they going to ask about the differences between these two <laughs> these rollups? Uh, so, in order to get a complete understanding of all these differences, I definitely recommend going to Polynaya's Medium. Uh, I'll put I'll put a link in the uh, in the author in the Office Hours chatter. Um, this Polynaya can write about these these things far more succinctly and, and clearly more than we ever could. Mainly. Uh, to, I, I think as a high-level answer, really the cool thing about rollups, it allows you choice in where you actually deploy your data, right? Uh, and so you can, uh, and again, these are these are choices on like decentralization, centralization choices on like the spectrum of trustlessness versus non-trustlessness. Uh, there and so like these things like optimism and and Arbitrum and and some zk rollups, these are. The ones that we know of today are very much like decentralization, trustless maximization, but there is room for other parts of the uh, blockchain experience to be relegated to different servers, right? So where Ethereum has like uh, data shards on the L1 to support data, you can, instead of support putting your data on the Ethereum L1, you could put it on a centralized server base. And the use cases for this might be something like Fortnite might want to use this where they have events and occurrences and objects inside of Fortnite that are ultimately settled on Ethereum. But like the internal state of internal games and, and some things and what these objects represent is kind of hosted by their own centralized database. It's really just about having like ha being able to um, 
pick and choose how much trustlessness and decentralization that you want for your particular use case. Uh, with Validiums and Volitions, these are, these are different flavors of different ways to put data that aren't on Ethereum. Uh, that's really kind of the extent of my knowledge with these things. And again, like if more knowledge, if you want more uh, in-depth details on this, Pauline Naya's uh, Medium article or Medium page can answer everything. But um, one, one of the things I think why Ryan and I can talk about so many things is that we're actually not experts in any of them, but we kind of understand all of them, the gist of it. And that's definitely like what's coming out right now. Yeah, I, you know, what, what I would add to that is like the model of modular blockchains is like that, you know, um, there, there's three components to a blockchain, right? Uh, the, there's the consensus layer, there's the data layer, and then there's the execution layer, right? And so like monolithic blockchains, it's all done together. That's what Ethereum is today. And modular blockchains, it kind of splits this apart, right? And so like, now we have this thing called a rollup. And so the execution happens there, but the data can still either be put on uh, something like Ethereum, of course, or it can be put something out somewhere else. And um, the example that you gave is these terms like a validium and a volition, right? So um, a validium is where a, a rollup is actually not posting the data to the Ethereum main chain. It's posting it somewhere else uh, on another less you know secure layer, for example. And so um, that's what a validium is. And I'll go back to, to that example. A volition is just sort of um, gives you the option on a per transaction basis. The way I remember like volition is it's the user's volition. It's whatever they choose to do. Um, they can either choose to put it on mainnet and pay a bit more uh, Ethereum mainnet and use its data availability uh, layer, or they can post the data to a less secure data availability layer, right? So it's their own volition. They get to choose, and maybe they can choose at a more granular degree on a per transaction basis. So do I want to pay 10 cents for this transaction? Yes, because it's a $1,000 transaction. Or am I okay with just paying like one cent for it, right? That would be sort of the, the user trade-off that you'd see. Now, um, you know, example of like ZK Sync and e each of these uh, different rollups have a different strategy for data availability, like Optimism and Arbitrum, as far as I know, they're doing data availability, just posting that on mainnet right now. Um, there are some of the ZK Sync type solutions uh, or some of the ZK uh, rollup type solutions like ZK Sync, for, for example, that's going to roll out with its own data availability layer. Um, Polygon is investing in a, a data availability layer as well. Just that's kind of separate. So is a solution called Celesta. I think Starkware has its own. And, you know, for ZK Sync, I'm somewhat familiar with that one. Uh, they're going to have basically a proof of stake uh, chain that also provides data availability. I can't recall what exactly that's called, but it it just allows you if you're on the a Z, a zk rollup, right? You can either choose to post something on mainnet, or you can post to that um, proof of stake zk as you know zk chain for data availability. And it's just going to drastically reduce the transaction costs. Now, what the exact trade offs are. Um, I think that that's an area of depth that, like, honestly, uh, we, we probably need to cover more. And uh, we're going to be talking to the Starkware team uh, next week. And then we're going to have Polygon on. And soon we'll have Matter Labs, ZK Sync on. So this is like kind of you, you're meeting us mid journey where we're all we're kind of discovering all of this. 
Um, but my understanding is that um, even using a non-Ethereum data availability layer, you still get a massive amount of security benefits, like massively more secure than a sidechain. I think the worst that could happen is some sort of censorship attack. You, you always have the ability to withdraw your funds. Um, Immutable as well, Immutable X is not using main chain so much for data availability, it's using something else. So anyway, all, all this to say the, the Validium and the Volition design, the ability to post data outside of the Ethereum data layer is going to allow us to massively expand Ethereum scalability in this modular design. The last thing I'll say on that is, of course, when ETH2 sharding comes down the pipeline, so maybe circa 2023, then um, Ethereum's data availability layer is going to like expand by like 64 times, right? And so um, that will make Ethereum 18 times, 18. 18 times, excuse me, right? So 64 shards, I guess that will expand by 18 times. So that will make Ethereum's um, cost for data availability a lot lower too, uh, and will further scale everything out. Um, I, I hope that, I hope that helps a little bit, Jake, but, um, you know, there, there's some more thing, like there's some more we have to investigate here. So stay tuned to the podcast. No, that was, that was great. Um, I probably am asking these questions because I'm like keeping up with you guys. And, um, if you haven't yes, answered it yet, that's probably why. Yeah, you're, you might be ahead of us, sir. <laughs> no, no, I was hoping no, these were going to be one-on-one questions, but no, <laughs> no, bank listeners uh, are smart. Brian, here, here's a pretty fun question from Spooky Boogie. I don't see Spooky Boogie in here, so I will just go ahead and read it out. Uh, this, this, one's, this one's kind of fun. How do you guys prevent crypto from taking over your life? There's so much to learn. Uh, I assume you have a lot of money at stake as well, and there's so much innovation going on. It's overwhelming to keep up with it, and also the fear <laughs> and stress of not keeping with it up with it because you don't want to miss out on the big asymmetric opportunities. How do you balance the urge to feel like you need to keep on learning while not allowing it to take over because it's, uh, it totally can unless you throttle your progress? You want to you want to start on this one? Yeah, I'll start. I can, can I be real with you guys? Like, you know, I don't think I've solved this one yet. Okay, yeah, this is an unsolved problem. <laughs> I think this is, uh, you know, crypto kind of has taken over a huge chunk of my life, to be honest, right? And it's like it's you know, um, it, it's been super beneficial and and healthy in a lot of ways. Like, just to give you examples, right? It's like it's taken a hold of my net worth, right? There was a time where I didn't have any money in crypto, and it's totally taken that. It's like when when we talk about going bankless and having two flippings, right? It's like one is your net worth in crypto exceeds your your net worth in the real world, and then the second is like where you stop using your bank account, you just disconnect. Like it's already consumed a ton of like my assets, right? So th that's already ported over. And as far as attention goes, um, I ported that over as well because in 2017. I realized that my day job just wasn't cutting it. Like I was just so absorbed by everything going on in crypto that I just had to double down and jump in. So that's when I sort of went full time on this uh, on this crypto journey. And then since then, I, I feel like part of spinning up um, Bankless with David has been just so that we could talk with our friends more and talk with cool people in the industry and learn more and go on this journey, right? And so... Um, like it's taken a ton of my attention, uh, and like, it's all been super beneficial and it's been super great. It just, it sometimes it does make it difficult to disconnect. And so when I get to the end of a week and I feel like, um, th there can be like this gnawing thing where I feel like I've missed something, 
right? It's like, it's like, what did I, what did I actually miss? Or God forbid I go on vacation or go on holiday for a few days because then it's like, man, I come back and I'm like, what did I miss? I have to catch up. And so I guess the only coping mechanism I found during those times is to just like breathe deeply, relax, right? It's like uh, zoom out and realize I don't have to like know the day-to-day of what regulatory FUD just happened last week or what project just launched or who raised what. Like that's not really important. What's most important is the, is the trend here. And so, um, you know, I, I I can find peace in that. I can also find peace in like n- never taking out margin, for example. I think like margin is the devil. I can also mm. um, find peace in not buying things and holding things I don't believe in or keeping that part of my portfolio like very, very small, right? So like I'm not worried that ETH is going to have uh, a single event that could tank. Like I have no stress in holding ETH at this point. Uh, so So those sorts of things help. But yeah, apart from that, it's still a work in progress. And I, I probably have to find more ways to disconnect and um, not have it take over my full life. I don't know, David, what would you say on that? Yeah, uh, I, I kind of have approached this a little differently. Uh, having no, Noticing my attention become like crypto only was really what made me, uh, kind of like exactly what Ryan said, helped me realize that my, my current career path, my former career path, uh, was just not going to be sustainable because, well, even if I did like not go down the crypto rabbit hole, it's, al- it's already taking my, my complete attention and I don't even work in it yet, right? Uh, and so just, just knowing that like, it's capturing my attention is what like, led me to commit to the industry full-time. And then there, there is the issue of just like, oh, I'm on my computer 12 hours a day, like only thinking about crypto, only on crypto Twitter, only reading crypto articles, only watching crypto YouTube. At some point... And like I, initially, I'd be like, okay, like gotta gotta monitor my screen time, gotta like manage my social life, like blah 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 blah. At some point, I just like completely capitulated to crypto, and they, I've just kind of let it like wash over me. You're also, let, that, you're just integrating it all. I now just I point. just let it. Yeah, I, <laughs> your social life is now crypto as well. That's ex- that's exactly right. And like honestly, it's like it's kind of like other people would call this a concern. I think it's fine. Uh, but like, I've actually stopped being able to like relate to some of my like non-crypto friends. Like a lot of my, my early, early, like middle school, high, high school friends, they're big on baseball, big on sports. And like, I just, I just can't, I just, it's kind of a problem. I can't really relate to them anymore. And like, this is not just me. This is a lot of people that I talk to in the, in the world of crypto is like, they've kind of lost their ability to relate to people that also cannot talk about other crypto things and where i used to kind of consider that this was once a problem i've just kind of the, the beauty the beauty about crypto post covid is that it's actually grown so big and especially with nfts these days that you actually i actually can like have a complete like end to end social life work balance career experience it is just all inside of crypto the people uh, in crypto are awesome the people in crypto are absolutely fantastic yeah uh, and so I've kind of just like let it happen. Like I've just let it kind of take over my life and I'm actually kind of cool with it. Like some of the people I meet are some of the most interesting. Uh, and I, I definitely am in a, am in a unique spot where like I've actually, w- one of the reasons why I've, I've, I kind of credit like the success that I've had over the last like three years is because I've been single for the last three years in crypto. Uh, so I've ha- only have had crypto to actually be focused on. Uh, so that, and so like, I don't, haven't really had to actually do any balancing, which again, sounds unhealthy, but like it kind of worked out. Um, 
Uh, we don't really have an answer for you, I guess, other than yeah, like, it's okay. It's, it's bear market. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> Wait for the next one. Yeah. I, you know, you know, what's cool though, David, I, I know you've had this experience, but it's like you mm-hmm. ever bring one of your friends or, or you see one of your friends that you kind of used to know prior to crypto and they make mm-hmm. it to the other side and now they're yes. in crypto. Yes. Like, yes, there's something about this. It's like, you know, you go into this new land, this undiscovered, and then you find someone there you used to know in your old life. And it's like, oh, you're here too. You made it. That's mm-hmm. what, that's, what's really fun to me. That's, that's happened mm-hmm. to me a few times. So best thing I found you could do is try to bring some of your, uh, your social connections over to crypto. Yes. So you, <laughs> you still have those. hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, ready, ready to move on. Next question. I yeah, think so. Okay, where, where there's a fun question asked by Zero uh, X One. You Zero X One, are you listening? Do you want to ask your question? If not, I can just read it out. Okay, I'll go ahead and read it out. Zero X One asks uh, David Ryan. Uh, oh no, excuse me, that's actually the wrong the wrong question. Uh, where to go? Where to go? I apologize. Um, uh, okay, I think it might be mine. <clears throat> Is uh, it Xerox Ditto? Hey, Xerox Ditto, shoot for it, go for it. Yeah, so this is about you know that fine line between you know purveying information about up and coming you know tokens and layer twos, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and and you know often often uh, folks in your position you're kind of a um, sorry, sometimes you're accused of shilling your bags. And how do you mm-hmm. how do you balance kind of the ethical considerations when you are honestly interested in a project and you want to um, you want to put it on bankless and you want the bankless audience to know about it, but you're also you know an investor in that project. Like how do you how do you make that decision around you know how to speak towards it and if you speak towards it at all? Do you want me to start on that, David? Yeah, yeah, go for it, Ryan. Uh, I think that's a great question, Xerox Ditto. It's like, one thing I was thinking about is like, you know, certain biases that uh, investors have in the space. And I think every investor has a bias, whether they acknowledge it or not. And it's like, when when people tell me they're investing without bias, I'm like, really? That's kind of like a dumb idea, right? Like, what? (laughs) Do you mean like you're investing without conviction, without like actually having a framework for your investments? I guess you might call that bias. And so, like, I think the first thing uh, to do, and maybe this is this is sort of the the principle that underlies, um, you know, all of my answers to Xerox Ditto is like uh, transparency, right? It's like know what your biases are. Okay, it's like I'll give you a quick counterpoint. So, let's say that you you know you know David and I are big uh, ETH fans. We're big DeFi fans. What if what if the Bankless community found out that we didn't actually hold any ETH or DeFi tokens? Right, right. We my were God, <laughs> that would be hugely disappointing, right? Like because I mean, we advocate this stuff so passionately, and we're so excited about it. It would be more of a disappointment, I would think, to our community and our listeners if you found out some dirty little secret, like David and I just owned it was just fiat, and we mm-hmm. just love our Wells Fargo accounts, right? Like, mm-hmm. wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be a discovery? So, like, um, we're very transparent with the the projects that. Um, that we own and that uh, that we're passionate about, um, but I guess we do have some biases. Okay, it's so like, and I, I think 
the important thing is for us to be able to articulate that to you, to our community, to the bankless nation, right? So I would say our biases are threefold. First, we're going to be biased towards decentralization. We actually believe in decentralization as an investment thesis. So the reason we prefer um, a Bitcoin to an XRP is decentralization. The reason we prefer an Ethereum to some sort of uh, ETH killer or sidechain is decentralization. Okay, so I think you'll find decentralization as part of our underlying thesis here. Um, the second thing, bias that we have is I think we're biased towards fundamentals. Okay, and so we very much look for long-term fundamentals. Um, I know like narratives can become fundamentals, fundamentals can become narratives, but like, and so some people might argue they're, they're one and the same. I do think that they're a little bit different. I think that fundamentals have to back a narrative or the narrative dies. And so when we're evaluating a simple thing like um, which layer ones will succeed, right? Well, it's really attractive for us to look at on-chain revenues for, for, for those things. How, 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 much, how many blocks, how much uh, sales volume in blocks goes through a chain, right? And it's like Bitcoin is there, Ethereum is there. There's very few others that are there. And we have to ask ourselves why. Why aren't those fundamentals in place, right? So fundamentals is another thing that kind of um, is a bias that, that David and I have and that Bankless has. Um, the third thing I would say is is long term horizons, right? So, uh, you know, people will ask why we why we're not talking about a certain project that's just pumped, or why why we're not talking about like SHIB or something like that. I mean, part of that is fundamentals, but part of this is also like long term orientation. And so, uh, we want to always be long term oriented. And so, these are some of the biases. And I think you know when we talk about one project but but not another. Um, it, it probably falls under those. Now, there are some other cases where David and I um, hold a, you know, a specific amount of tokens in a project or we are advisors uh, in a project. Now, I don't know if Bankless um, uh, listeners are aware of this, but we actually publish that. Um, there's like a page in Substack where we, we publish everything that we uh, own that's over like 5% and we publish who we're advisors for. And whenever possible, we also um, disclose that. So, uh, yeah, like we try to be transparent with what our actual biases are, so that you know. Because, like, here's the other thing: there, there's a chance that that we could be wrong about some of these things, right? Um, like, what if people really don't care about decentralization, or what if narratives actually matter more than fundamentals, you know? There are some other people in the space that you can follow that, um, that will tell you those things. Uh, but it's just not our platform, it's not what we believe in, it's not how we invest, and it's honestly, it's not how we want to see the world. We want to see the world maximally bankless. Uh, and so I think you'll see those projects are the ones that, that we primarily support. Uh, but as far as you know, like what tokens we invest in, if it's over 5%, we disclose it on the page. Uh, where we're advisors, we disclose it on that page as well. Uh, and uh, we, we, um, we just try to make sure that the, the community is totally aware of all of our biases. I don't know. What would you add to that, David? You still there, David? Sorry, I had the wrong mute button on. Thank you. Um... Yeah, so to get even more granular, there are times where like Ryan and I are are reading some like new project sooner than the average person is. 
Uh, and then we invite that person, like for me specifically, I'll, I'll, I'll invite that team on to the meet the nation show. And so like, yeah, and I'm now I'm promoting some, some project by giving them the time of day on the bankless YouTube and by even inviting them on and giving, lending them some sort of credibility. The cool thing with the meet the nations is that like, I'm actually learning about the projects as I interview them. So it's not like I have the idea about what these projects are before I cop the into a podcast with them and so sometimes i'll record like a meet the nation with like this is this happened with me and, and tokamak for example i'll record like a meet the nation with tokamak publish it and then like usually that is my due di due diligence right so i'm actually doing the same amount of due diligence that i'm posting onto the youtube and that's kind of like that this transparency first like mindset that we that we have at bankless and one of the reasons why I'm just so honored and humbled that Bankless has gotten the success that it has is because Bankless leads with like, it's like an ethos first media company, transparency first media company. And the fact that people value that enough to turn Bankless into what it is, like it's cooler that we are that way, right? Like we actually can like, we, the goal of, of me and Ryan is to like literally be uncancelable. And that is why people tune into Bankless is because we have the trust and the legitimacy. And the last thing we would ever want to do is, is violate that because at this point, like I'm way more into like social capital than I am capital capital. There's like, I don't know if you guys saw like BitBoy's, um, unreleased disc, uh, paid ad disclosures where he would charge people like $40,000 for a shout out. And that guy's just like raking in like millions of dollars a month just on just like unreleased paid disclosures. Uh, no, unreleased, non-disclosed paid ads, right? And like, that's just like not cool. And I want to be cool. Like I want to be, uh, I'm a person that cares about what people think about me. Uh, and that sort of just uh, like, you know, that prioritization, I think, keeps you know keeps our noses clean and and kind of removes ourselves. And, and especially like back in the bear market in 2017, there was absolutely zero media entities that you could really trust. Like Laura Shin was back there, and you could definitely trust her. Uh, but after that, there weren't that many. And so like that's I think one of the reasons why Bankless has been so successful is because we've led as a transparency first media org, as in inside of a world that definitely needs transparency. Yeah, reputational capital is hugely valuable. It's like mm -hmm. that is the most valuable asset. It's not ETH, not Bitcoin. It's your reputation is the most valuable asset in this place. And I guess the last thing I'll add is like um, we are not. So some people have called us journalists in the past, and um, I like I'm I'm not a journalist. Not I'm a journalist. Think, are you a journalist, David? Like neither. One of us time are, I was sure. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's like we um, we're not. Um, we, we want to be transparent about our biases and uh, we do have them. And we actually think that's a good thing because I think the rest of mainstream media is biased too. They're biased towards the existing institutions and we are biased towards decentralization, right? So like we care a lot about going bankless like that, that is legitimate and that is our bias and that might not always generate the highest investment returns. All right. It's so like it, it just might not. I mean, you might be better off buying a, a SHIB or, you know, a BNB Binance token or something than uh, something that we would talk about on Bankless. So for us, it is about like it's about more than just capital. It's it's actually about you know reputation. It's about values. And um, that's why we call ourselves a, a thesis driven media company. We're not just a news driven media company. We definitely have some biases that that uh i get i guess another word for val for biases is values mm -hmm. convictions mm -hmm. and like things that we care a lot about and we do um we we do tend to talk about those things i i hope that helps answer your question
one of the one of the cool parts about this angle is like not and not being journalists and like having a mission with this media entity is like we actually do get to pump bags like do you guys hold eth because my job is to pump your goddamn <laughs> yeah. bags like that it's is what i'm here to good. do we think it's yes. good for the world it's right? the it's same thing as like having values like I've, if you have values that align with ethereum I want to pump those bags yeah. and I want to promote those values by doing that. It's not neutrality. It's like, we're not, we're, gonna, <laughs> we're not, not just, <laughs> we're not just neutral. Like, just to be honest, like we're not, we have biases. We care about decentralization, right? It's like, we have a thesis. We're not, we're definitely not approaching this from a, as a neutral bystander. Right. Okay. I think we've cashed that one did, out. Did we kill uh, it? We've, we've, we've got it. that one. Yeah. Uh, okay. All right, Ryan, it's, it's time to talk Solana. Here's a question from oh, zero X Al. Uh, Ryan, David, please, can you help clear my mind on this question I have been having? If Ethereum's upgrades are controlled by a close knit of people under Vitalik Circle, how is this not considered centralized like uh, Solana? Does it mean your classification of decentralized or centralized is based on the validators? Uh, I can take this one to start with, Ryan, if you want. Yeah, go for it. Okay. Uh, I would argue that the framing is actually just incorrect. How is it, uh, if Ethereum's upgrades are controlled by a close knit uh, group of people under Vitalik's circle? Uh, so there's two things I would say that are wrong with that. There's It's not a close-knit group of people, and it's not inside of Vitalik's circle. I wouldn't say Vitalik even has a circle. Um, Ethereum, both Ethereum in its current form with all of the Ethereum, like we don't use this nomenclature anymore, but everyone kind of knows what I'm talking about, so I'll use it anyways. The Ethereum 1 client validators, these are or clients, these are the guest teams, Parity, uh, a few other clients I can't remember the name of. Like Those are all individual um, teams that run clients that support Ethereum. And when a change, an EIP, a hard fork goes in, that goes through this very chaotic, very non-organized set of like consensus between who are called core devs. And core devs, like there is no like actual definition of what a core dev is. There's just, like this uh, famous uh, like all core devs call that Amin Soleimani, who's not a core dev, hopped onto. Uh, and basically like facetiously posed the question, like um, the, the, the line was answered like, hey, we need consensus, but we need a leadership from a core dev. And Amin was like, oh, I'll do it. And then Hudson was like, no, Amin, you're not a core dev. And Amin was like, how can I, can I be a core dev? And uh, it was basically, Amin facetiously like poking fun at how there is actual no definitions between a core dev and core not. It's very, very rough. And so not only is like this system of governance very, very rough, like all of the clients, all the individual client teams, which are themselves a group of people. So we have a group of clients with a group of people that all need to uh, come to consensus about whether or not an upgrade should be included or not. And then that also that whole same pattern repeats with Ethereum 2 and all the Ethereum 2 clients. And so like the, the, generally you kind of hear these complaints like, oh, like it's really just Vitalik like bestowing like his control upon these client teams and like Vitalik hasn't done that in a really long time and kind of like maybe a lot of people listen to Vitalik based off of the fact that he's got good ideas but it's really not at like what generally this is the Bitcoiners kind of like advertise it to be as like a close-knit group of people um and the the difference between like Solana is like it, so Solana like maybe there actually aren't all that like um meaningful differences in the words that I use, but there are, it's just a smaller set of people coming to a smaller set of uh, centralized circumstances to the point like where all the Solana validators were able to restart the system with 80% consensus by all hopping into the same Discord channel. Like that actually couldn't really happen with Ethereum and, and Ethereum nodes because 
All of the client teams have to update the software. All of the people who run those specific clients have to download that software of their own volition. It's just a different set of circumstances that um, that really differentiate these one single, like Solana, for, for example, actually only has one client, right? And so only one client needs to get updated. Uh, and so rather than Ethereum, uh, Ethereum 1 is like four clients and Ethereum 2 is like five clients. Uh, and so there's a bunch, like decentralization, decentralization is kind of hard to actually like measure. And that's kind of the point. Um, but we do, we do know that like Vitalik does not have this top-down control, nor has he had this top-down control almost ever actually in yeah. Ethereum's history. Hey, People just listen to him because he's got a good idea. Like, kind of Greenpoint Williamsburg? Uh, somebody can, he's yeah. going to get muted. Uh, who is okay, this person? Cool. Do you guys have indoor seating? Who is this person? I can't <laughs> find this person. Cool. I got it. It's Jelly Beans. Jelly Beans? Hey, Jelly okay. Beans. Goodbye, Jelly Beans. Love you, though. Yeah, <laughs> love you. Uh, okay. Uh, all right. Uh, let's go with uh, one more question. Dude, and I'm going to start pulling I, I, I got an answer to that, too, David. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Go yeah. ahead. Go ahead, Ryan. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I forgot uh, I have I a would... co-host. I would, yeah, I would echo what David said, right? It's like about um, th there being levels of decentralization on the kind of the social layer, also the client layer. But the bottom line to me is actually kind of a, you know, maybe a different answer or uh, addressing this a different way. Classification of decentralized, or, uh, you asked the question, does it mean your classification of decentralized or centralized is based on validators? And uh, it's not, not completely. Um, to me, it's, it's based on the non-validating nodes okay so the, the problem with solana is an individual can't run a a node a client basically mm -hmm. uh you know from their from their home with their consumer grade hardware you need to have a, a data center uh you need to pay a whole lot of money to spin up hardware in this data center it's not really built for the consumer so i'm, I'm not even talking about validators or validating nodes i'm talking about non-validator nodes right so these are the the nodes that basically can read the blockchain these are the nodes that um you know can download a newest software update so if the ethereum clients say you know download this this uh software update it's, it's up to not only the validating nodes but the the non-validating nodes to either download it reject it or accept it um being able a consumer, an individual being able to run a validating node is a massive check uh, of power on the elites in the system. If you think of the elites in the system as, as sort of the validators. And um, we had a great podcast. I think the last podcast we, uh, we did with Vitalik, we actually talked a little bit about this and the importance of non-validating nodes. And that was uh, really helpful for me. So if you want to go back in the archives and and listen to um, why non-validating nodes are so important, why individuals have to have this check and balance on the validators of the system. I think um, he talks about it in some detail. And at the end of the day, if you can't run a node for the chain, what are you? You're kind of a bank. You start to move in that direction anyway. And uh, so, so that is why it's so important. I think that's why it's Bitcoin has made it important, right? Big, Bitcoin node is even easier to run than an Ethereum uh, non-validating node, right? Like, um, and Ethereum needs to improve on this, but you can still run an Ethereum validating, a uh, non-validating node from your home. And with light clients, you'll be able to do that even more in the future. So that to me is the big check on uh, whether it's centralized or decentralized, can you actually run a non-validating node? It's super important. 
All right, since we're on the topic of Solana, we'll, we'll answer the other Solana question. This one comes from Lumpy, Lumpy the Bumpy Heffalump. Uh, Heffalump. <laughs> Heffalump. Uh, I don't believe Lumpy. Is, oh, Lumpy, you're here. Uh, do you want to read your question? Hi, Lumpy. Lumpy, you're making noise. You want to ask, ask your question? Oh, hey. Sorry. Oh, I totally just joined into this thing. Oh, oh good timing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so, uh, so your Solana question, you want to ask it? Yeah, 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 I got it here. Okay. Could you please discuss what I see as the dangers to ETH dominance from Solana? Basically, I see Solana growing at an incredible pace. And while we can discuss the values uh, enshrined in, Ethereum impl in, in Ethereum's implementation... I do worry that those values will be left behind if ETH Layer 2 scaling doesn't become more usable and fast, meaning all Layer 2 is connected in an easy-to-use way um, with Fiber and Tap ecosystem across all of them, kind of meaning just be able to like kind of swap between them easy. Um, with the current rate of crypto adoption, I'm just worried that taking like a few years to get to this functionality is uh, going to be too long and the network effect mode of Ethereum will be lost. Um, well, I see no other chain. With a sound of a roadmap and monetary policy, this will, in my humble opinion, be worth enough when mass adoption happens, as most people will not understand all of these things and simply look for the fastest and easiest to use ecosystem. Do you agree with this concern? Why or why not? I think the, I, the first thing I would say to that, Ryan, oh, Ryan you want to go? No, you go ahead. The, the first thing I, I would say to that is, um, from what I've gathered, uh, from a very small set of data is that the funds of the world, the hedge funds of the world, and, and overall the big corporations that really move the needle when it comes to like when these entities pick and choose what platforms are going to be the, the long-term platforms really, really matter, right? So people are circling around ETH from what I can gather from all these people coming to understand that basically everything is built on Ethereum. And yes, Solana has done a fantastic job building out its own native developer ecosystem. And that's something that we've actually never seen before after Bitcoin and Ethereum is see another L1 chain actually have a, a, uh, a pretty vibrant developer ecosystem come up around it. And so I'm not going to say that Solana is just like EOS or it's just like Tezos or just like XRP because it, it is a beast of its own and it has generated its own amount of success uh, thus far that, that is deserved its own deserved success. Granted, uh, this goes to the uh, one, one of the many like things that we could talk about with this goes back to the modular blockchain thesis where Solana has optimized to be an execution optimized blockchain. Uh, but the, the rollups of Ethereum are just always going to be far more execution optimized than Solana has ever been. And so when you say like, um, do you see Solana, you know, growing its own network effects at a pretty, pretty good tick rate? Uh, it's, it, it is doing that. Yet it has to also do that under the limitations of actually being somewhat decentralized. Like Solana is not a centralized server. It actually has some semblance of decentralization to it. And so while this uh, and all of this adoption is coming because of its low fees. Uh, and so like, yeah, the, the kind of the layer two Ethereum rollout is slower than what we want. It's not like this binary thing where like, oh, boom, all we have now our L2s are ready. It's going to be a lot slower than that. But the thing is, like those are going—they're going to be able to capture enough steam for enough use cases that uh, I think keeps keeps this whole low fee narrative on Ethereum on, on Ethereum going. And the important thing about Solana is actually in the long term, the whole like low fee value capture thing 
it actually kind of runs into a dead end, right? Because at some point in time, the Solana blockchain is going to become too large of a state for uh, computers to be able to manage. Uh, we're currently seeing this with BSC right now. Uh, and at some point in time, they actually have to increase fees. And so like, yes, it's it's doing this whole penetrative pricing thing where it comes into, into the world of crypto, it drops its fees down to zero by, by compromising on, on decentralization. Everyone thinks it's the coolest thing since sliced bread. They come and build their apps on it because of the no fees. But in order to be a long-term sustainable economic system, you got to add fees. Uh, and so like, yeah, Solana is pulling in a lot of attention and a lot of developer energy, but is eventually going to actually have to turn on fees. And when you've optimized your L1 blockchain to be a low fee environment, you're going to attract low fee use cases. And then as soon as you turn on fees, you're actually going to end up breaking like the, the all the like the network effects that you've created because you you cut corners. Uh, and so this is this is where while we say like the rollout um, uh, of the rollups of, of L2s has gone slowly, it's gone it's gone slowly. Yet it's also done it in a way where it's long term sustainable, so it doesn't actually have to change the foundations that all these applications are building on. Um, hopefully, hopefully that that answered your question enough. Just to uh, put a fine point on what David was saying with re respect to like, so remember going back to the biases, like how is um, how is bankless biased? Well, um, long term bias, certainly, and, and a decentralization bias. Right. And, and David is talking about Solana uh, having to have an increased block um, f you know, fees in the future. And it absolutely does, because right now it's not sustainable. I think I wrote this in a. Um, one of the bankless weekly recaps uh, a few weeks ago I was just like looking at different you know chain revenue and what's pulling in and uh if you looked at Solana at that time over the last 30 days or so it had brought in it was something like it was like tens tens of thousands maybe it's like 30,000 maybe into the 100,000 in terms of um fee revenue right and again fee revenue economic security it all goes into economic security so brought in something like, we'll call it $30,000 in a 30-day period in fee revenue versus Ethereum brought in like, you know, 70 million or something. And it cost uh, an annual annual fee of, of $4 billion in uh, issuance, right? Because you can only pay for blockchain security in one of two places. It's either fee revenue, people are paying for block uh, space, or issuance. You're actually issuing a currency and that currency is, is valuable. And that provides your economic security. So, when when you look at that, right, it's like your um, your your economic security has to be has to you know uh, like it ha it has to be there. And so, like with Solana, um, its its costs, its economic security costs were exceeding the revenue that it brought in by a lot, by like you know ninety nine point something percent. Uh, and so, like, that's not economically sustainable either. So, back to David's point, they ha they'll have to raise fees in the future, or supply and demand will raise fees in the future. And um, it just feels like kind of a shortcut. But I think your bigger point here, Lumpy, is also important for crypto, which is basically something we've already seen. I think what you're what you're saying is like, hey, Ethereum gas fees on main chain are too expensive. Um, you know, Bitcoin fees are too expensive as well. And where do you see Bitcoin scaling? Well, it's sc scaling in crypto banks, right? It's scaling on like the BlockFi's and Coinbase's of the world and other side chains of the world, right? That's where it's scaling. Um, Ethereum 
has to kind of scale that way too because it doesn't have a robust layer two. But when we say scale that way, is it really scaling? It's like, you're not really scaling if you're just offsetting some of your transaction throughput onto a sidechain or onto a centralized exchange. So I see something like Solana is, it's sacrificing decentralization, right? Um, in a way that makes it a bit more like a hybrid between like an Ethereum and a crypto bank, right? It's like, it's almost like a, a FinTech-esque type platform. And I'd say the same of Terra, and a lot of the Cosmos chains, like I'd say the same, I'd say the same for a lot of these chains. They're kind of like like somewhere in the middle. But the thing they haven't really done is done the hard work of scaling transaction fees while preserving decentralization because they have made those, you know, centralization uh, sacrifices. Like I can't run a Solana node from my own home, a non-validating node, and that's like that's a problem because that is a centralization vector. Uh, and one of the most important ones that we're trying to preserve in these uh, in these crypto money systems. So, if you don't scale, right? Uh, if we're not scaling trustless, decentralized transaction throughput on something like an Ethereum or a Bitcoin, then what happens? Well, it starts to get centralized. It starts to go to more centralized side chains, other layer ones that like aren't quite as decentralized. It starts to go to crypto banks, and so. It is an imperative that we do the thing that crypto uh, you know, needs to do, which is we scale the decentralized transaction throughput of the base layer, right? And not take shortcuts, but actually scale it. And that's why like, over the long run, I think that is the actual product that blockchains provide, decentralized blockchains provide. You know, trustlessness, decentralization, and um, those are the things that, that we need to scale without taking shortcuts. So I guess the threat has always been present, I would say, Lumpy, of like, if we don't scale the base layer, if we don't get layer two right, if we don't scale with decentralization and cryptography, then all of this stuff is going to centralize, uh, whether it's on a Solana, whether it's on crypto banks, whether it's on a sidechain, which, which is why, uh, you know, we support decentralization so much and we support like layer twos uh, so much. And I think that those will win out over time because they are preserving, you know, the one thing that blockchains do, which is decentralization as they're scaling. So if I could put a kind of a fine point on my question, it's that mm -hmm. like, you know, with social media, we all got used to like giving up our privacy for ease of use. And I guess my worry is that like, everyone will get used to giving up their decentralization for ease totally. of use. But what yep. I'm hearing is that there is an actual technical moat that will come into play that will cause the like pendulum to swing backwards, is what you guys are saying. Yeah, you, yeah. you definitely qualified this, where you, you, you said uh, the, you don't see any other chain other than Ethereum with it as sound of a roadmap and monetary policy, but you said it, you don't think that this might, I mean, this might not be enough when mass adoption happens. Most people not understand these things and will simply look for the fastest and easiest ecosystem to use. Um, the, and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier with having biases towards long-term thinking. Like, yeah, maybe uh, Solana actually does get adopted at a faster rate over like this year and next year. But at some, times, at some point, it hits a dead end. It hits a technical dead end. And what you were saying was like, yeah, the, the people of this world are used to these, this Web2 world where like they, they are the products and that's just fine with them and they're, and they're used to that. Like there's a reason why like all these people that are new to crypto gravitate towards Solana because it feels like Web2. 
because it is like web two, like it is borrowing from the same patterns of like, okay, we'll, uh, we'll take the costs of like running the system upon ourselves because we're going to use you as the product. Like it's not that uh, egregious, but it is lending itself. The reason why Solana feels like web two is because it's compromised on decentralization. And then that's what you get. That's the user experience that you get. The difference between web two and where we're at now is that with Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all, all these web two platforms that use us as products, we didn't have the ability to exit. There was no alternative. And in the world of Web3, the, the, the default is the alternative. And it's actually the, the Web2 ethos that is actually skeuomorphic. And so Solana is getting this outsized adoption just because it looks and breathes like these similar Facebook applications that, that people of the Web2 world are used to because they're not used to the slow clunkiness of decentralization or trustlessness. They're not used to how expensive it is to have self-sovereign property ownership. And so this, this is why it always, there's, it's always an uphill battle because teaching the values of decentralization takes a really long time. It took me like six to nine months to actually understand why decentralization really matters. And so we can expect all these people in bull markets especially who are focused on just like, you know, pumping their NFTs or doing whatever to kind of put values to the side when the going, when, when there's a bunch of money flying around, like no one has time to open up a book and read about decentralization. Uh, but over the long term, and this is why mine and I always lean towards long term thinking is like, well, I'm not going to promote a system that I ultimately think that people are going to have to migrate away from at a later point in time. Like that's just doing them a disservice. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You know, the, the, I guess the other things I would add is um, if you want a centralized banking system, right, we already have one, right? It's called traditional finance. So like if we're going back there, we kind of, you're sort of starting to compete with fintech and traditional finance anyway. Um, the other thing to your point is like, um, you know, you worry that people will just go for the kind of the lower gas fees, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely think they will. But in the long run, I think layer two is actually going to have a better user experience or comparable user experience uh, at, at the start and then better later on um, versus a, a Solana, for instance. Like transaction fees on a ZK rollup are going to be pretty close to free. I mean, if you if you want a taste of this, go use DYDX, right? Uh, I mean, that, that, that's already in place. If, if you want another taste of it, go use Immutable. You can mint an NFT on Immutable and it costs nothing, right? And um, this is the future. It's just like a, a few months away, right? It's like, it's not now. It's not in the bear. It's not in the bull market where everyone wants super cheap block space. But if we wait just a little bit, we actually can get the user experience we all want for the world without sacrificing um, like the uh, the decentralization aspect, and then I guess, the, yeah, I, guess I was kind yeah, of worried ahead. about the user experience being isolated to like a single roll up because a lot of these like roll ups, um, <coughs> like they're great when you're on their ecosystem, but then if you want to like transfer out to another roll up, like it's a whole big mess and there's tax implications and like it's not seamless like on a layer one. Yeah, um, I think that's going to be fixed ish. So I think we're in this awkward like um, puberty type world where just like we're an awkward teenager and um it's just kind of messy and it it it's messy across like the multi-chain too right if you're using solana and avalanche you want to get back to ethereum or like it's it's like messy no matter how you cut it um but i think on layer two it's going to actually improve with um a, a few things one bridges from layer two to layer two um second fiat on ramps and then third, we're going to have some level of composability 
between all of the layer twos, right? Because they're all ideally operating on some of the, the same kind of um, data availability infrastructure, right? So we have some additional composability that um, when you're linking something from you know one one foreign chain like a Solana to an Avalanche, you, you don't have. So I also think that this thing is going to be a, a waiting game too. It's just like like early internet. If you guys, some of you guys listening, use the internet in the early days and david did a podcast with dc investor where he was reminiscing about how crappy it was to use the internet mm-hmm. in the early days and how much better user experience has gotten since those days to the point where people just don't even think about it right um this is the transformation that's going to happen in crypto over the next few years and i know this because i've also not only lived through the internet but like i've also already seen it in crypto my god taking out a cdp collateral debt position in maker DAO in the oh my early God, days. It was so clunky. It was ridiculous. It's like jankiest thing I've ever seen. And where we've come, you know, since that time, just a couple of short years, has been absolutely tremendous. So I guess I know I know it sounds like a pat answer that um we think these UX problems are going to be solved, but like we think these user experience problems are going to be solved. We the just have to the UX bit. improvement that we've had over the last two years is absolutely insane. Uh, yeah. I mean, granted, it started from a pretty bad spot, but yeah. like there, there is consistent UX improvement no matter what. Definitely. That's a great uh, question. Yeah, thanks for the question. Uh, okay, here, here's one, um, Ryan. Uh, this one comes from Gabion18. Let's see. Gab- Ga- oh, Ga- oh, Gabion, you are the ones that I've muted. I've just unmuted you, Gabion, if you want to ask your bank question. Or I can go ahead and ask it. Am I, did I find the button? Okay. Can you there hear me okay? Go. Yep. So um, the, the question is basically around uh, your, your contact with banks. I work inside a bank. Um, I'm, I'm trying to kind of push this, this big monster toward uh, more crypto friendly and, and toward looking to the future. And I'm wondering what contact you've had with banks uh, other than, you know, your personal life and things like that. But what, what kind of substantive contact have you had with banks or people interested in what Bankless Dow has to say? Have you spoken with any of the, uh, of the bigger banks uh, regarding, uh, you know, kind of your mission, our mission? Uh, and uh, would you be open to taking, and this is not a solicitation, I'm not trying to do this, I'm just a wage slave. Uh, would you be open to taking, uh, uh, you know, uh, bringing a banker onto your program to debate and or persuade? Uh, and I'm thinking about people like Jamie Dimon and, and those of, of his ilk or other folks that may be just Wall Street centric. Go back to mute. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So, like, first of all, maybe I'll answer the last question. Uh, we are open to having anyone on the podcast, you know, to talk about these things. Like, we want the entire world to come to DeFi and to this new, you know, money system that that we've created. So Jamie Dimon, you know, is invited, right? Um, so are so are large, you know, banks, and we'd be open to uh, to talking to to many of them. I I think historically, um, like they've had resistance against what DeFi is doing. I I, I kind of see banks as like, um. <laughs> We're going to have banks in a post-crypto successful era, right? But they're going to be different. And this is the, the sort of industry transition that they're going through is similar to like retail stores when in a post-Amazon world. Or it's similar to, you know, newspapers and magazines and media in a post-internet world. Like they're going to have a chasm to cross because there are a lot of things that banks do today 
that we will no longer need them to do in the future. And that's going to require them, I think, restructuring their underlying business. But I do think that there will still be value that, you know, quote unquote, banks, um, centralized financial service providers will actually be able to provide in the future on top of this decentralized financial money system. Like at the end of the day, what is a bank? It's a ledger, right? And so it's a ledger that's tied into the, uh, the United States ledger, right? The Fedwire, the central bank. Uh, and so what would a bank look like if it was a roll-up or if it was actually tied into um, DeFi? Maybe it looks a little bit more like a Coinbase. And so it would be interesting to see banks evolve in that direction. But from what we've seen so far, there haven't been a lot of bankers who, like yourself, are actually listening to bankless and engaged in walking what, like, watching what's going on, right? Um, and so they're just like not aware of this whole, or they're becoming aware slowly of this whole decentralized finance thing and how it's going to impact them in the future. But as far well, as talking here. to them, yeah. We're here we look, for sure. That's awesome. We can't, that's... we can't ignore the alpha. Thanks, <laughs> like making money, right? <laughs> right, yeah. It's just a matter of institutionally what's legal. How can we legally participate in these things? And banks have limitations. That's the thing, too. I mean, it's they're, they're, they're so hamstrung, aren't they, by the regulations? They are. They are, and it's and it's awful. I mean, it's almost like you're living two lives. By day, you do one thing, and at night, you jump into your secret uh, thing. You know, your MetaMask, <laughs> and and you start pulling down major yeah. bags from Uniswap, <laughs> and and then you feel sad that you're advising a client the next day. This is not what I do, but you're advising yeah. a client the next day on a, on an annuity. It's almost disgusting. No, I think look, I think the banks are used to have a more sympathetic sympathetic view on banks than we usually do at Bankless. But I think they're stuck in a system too, right? They're stuck in kind of a system that's somewhat broken, antiquated. Uh, and, um, you know, what can they do? A lot of these things are, you know, imposed upon them by the nation state and regulations. And I mean, if DeFi had to abide by the regulations of a bank, like there would be no such thing as Uniswap right now. And so no, that, that's something we have to fight in like, you know, Congress and, you know, on the lobbying side of things. But yeah, I totally get your point. So could I get you uh, on the pseudonymous record and and uh, if you got an invitation to a big bank to come and speak, uh, <laughs> not, not publicly, but private type meetings that, that you would uh, uh, at least seriously consider such an invitation? Yeah, I think David and I would definitely consider uh, such an invitation. Um, I don't get out much, but, you know, we all send <laughs> David and I'll beam in, right, David? <laughs> yeah, I'll bring the iPad. Um, right, yeah, yeah, everything's online now any day. Anyway, yeah. all right. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Uh, okay, so we have Ape Dog. Ape Dog, do you want to ask your question? What's up, guys? Hey, thanks for your podcast. I, I literally listen to it almost every day, um, driving around to work. Uh, but my question is, uh, I'm super, super interested in starting a DAO. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur, and I have like I've started many businesses, but a DAO is something that. I honestly thought it was my idea a long time ago. Like, I just want to make something where everyone gets a piece of the pie. And I guess what the question is, is like, how do I start and do I need to move to Wyoming? Yeah, uh -huh. so the, the Wyoming DAO thing, the, no, you do not need to move to Wyoming. The, the cool thing about DAOs is that they exist all over the world in the same way that the internet does, right? So a, a DAO is really just a new-aged LLC and you don't, and the cool thing about 
DAOs, you actually don't have to ask permission to start your LLC. You don't have to file any paperwork. You just really a DAO is, is centered around a token. Uh, so there are no limitations for you starting a DAO. You don't need to go ask your respective state or you know government to start a DAO. You can just start one. The reason I think why, why you're asking like what state that you need to live in or or like who you need to get approval of to ask uh, to start a DAO is Wyoming recently spun up their their whole like legally instantiated DAO thing that they did. So like when you file file for an LLC, there's actually a button right next to the LLC button. That's the DAO button. But really, this is just allowing DAOs to have nation-state footprints, like physical footprints in legal systems. So, for example, like Metafactory, for example. Metafactory is a DAO that produces apparel. But Metafactory needs to access like credit card payments and fiat payment rails to pay their suppliers. So it's organized as a DAO, but it needs like the rights of an LLC to in order yeah. to do some things. And so... Not all DAOs are like that. For example, Bankless DAO is not like that. And many, many other DAOs are just DAOs on Ethereum. Uh, and so it's not that you have to actually ask your specific state, hey, can I start a DAO? It's that some states are now allowing DAOs to actually become incorporated in order to benefit the, benefit the DAO in terms of infrastructure and like legal status as entities that exist in the nation state. But the whole point about DAOs is that they exist on Ethereum and Ethereum first. Does that answer your question? Uh Yes, yes. Um, I guess halfway. I guess um, I. So, like you know, living in the United States, they always want a piece of the cake that you're, you know, earning. And for a DAO, like, would you keep it? Like, I mean, I, I, I guess, like, <laughs> would you want it to be autonomous? And like, you know, should I just hook up a wallet that you know is not my main wallet or? I don't know. I guess like, like how do you pay your taxes? Kind of question. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't, I don't understand that. It just seems like a a nightmare of trying to start a DAO and actually having a profitable DAO. Yeah, I, I. So, I mean, there are some benefits to like doing a DAO, right? But there's also a lot of drawbacks, right? So, like, um, you know, drawback is uh, infrastructure is is pretty clunky at this stage. Um, there can be some costs like, you know, gas fees at this stage, right? If you're doing it on a mainnet, you might want to think about your, your DAO, you know, somewhere else. Um, yeah. you know, but I think the last one that like, you, you hit upon is, uh, DAOs have an unclear tax status, right? So like, mm -hmm. you know, let's say you had, um, thousands of members in a, in a DAO from all over the world. Well, mm -hmm. What jurisdiction is your DAO actually located in and where does it pay taxes? Is it all of the individuals like, kind of paying taxes uh, in their own jurisdiction? But what if the DAO has some sort of like, you know, profit? So to use David's analogy, uh, an LLC is like registered in the US, for example. If you have a yeah. you know, C Corp, you have registration, you know, many different countries, but a DAO doesn't really have that clear status. And they, it hasn't reached the stage where nation states actually have to weigh in and clarify the rules and regulations on you know, how a DAO pays its taxes, right? It's like Wyoming is a very small attempt at doing that, but it it's just sort of provides a little clarity and not a lot more. And mm -hmm. so you're kind of living in this, uh, in this weird zone. So before starting a, a DAO, with some of that ambiguity, some of the user experience challenges, you have to decide whether the the benefits are really worth it, right? 
Mm. It's like, I mean, maybe if you're starting a typical business, maybe just spin up an LLC or something. But like, yeah. the advantage of a DAO is you get this um, global capital pool. You can bring a bunch of strangers together, uh, you know, in creative ways. You can, you know, harness a community. Everything's programmable in the system. Like, there are some definite advantages. Like, if you were following the Constitution DAO, this attempt to buy the Constitution this week, uh, buy a copy of the Constitution, I mean, they raised $50 million in the course of 72 hours, right? You can't do that in a typical LLC structure. So if you have a... Imagine trying to like trying that. to wire fifty million dollars yeah, through the dude. banking system. Exactly right. So like, <laughs> that's the use case for a DAO right now. It's probably not your typical. Um, you know, I'm starting a a tech consulting business, and so I need a DAO. You probably don't need it for that. Yeah. Okay. All right. That good to know. Good to know. Yeah. I'm just like I, I love entrepreneurship, and um, DAO is like the obvious next step. And I I'm trying to get like the earliest. Um, the earliest experience slash exposure to it. Um, so yeah, I'll just join one ape dog, mm-hmm. go join, you know, join a DAO and go figure it out. Like, you know, that's because all the DAOs are figuring out how to do it right now. Right. And, you know, that would be the best probably uh, way to learn. Do you have any DAOs that you recommend? It's like really hard to find. Oh, I think of one. <laughs> There's uh, Dave, DAO, you know. Dave DAO. Dave DAO. Yeah. Dave, Dave, if your name's Dave, you can join Dave DAO. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not, but uh yeah where's the bankless DAO? do you have a channel for that or uh, or like a discord uh that is it's there's a whole separate server uh for bankless DAO, and you know um david and i actually um we're, we're involved in that but only as members we're not like really you know organizing mm-hmm. it's kind of like organizing on on its own but yeah, yeah. bankless.community i think has links to all the the discord servers and everything you can find stuff there okay cool Awesome. Eddie, Eddie just put it into Office Hours Chatter if you want to join Sweet. join the button there. All awesome. right, let's go on to our next question. Thanks for the question, buddy. Oh. Uh, all right, uh, Zacha Weed. Zacha Weed, do you want to ask your question? Hey, y'all. Can you hear me? Yeah. Hey, gotcha. how's it going? Um, Good. Yeah, so so quick background for me. I, I uh, live in Kentucky. I uh, work at a nonprofit theater, um, which is very different from crypto life. Extremely uh, different, But yeah. I, I got into... Uh, I got into crypto uh, listening to Bankless, so owe a lot to you guys. Really love it. Um, but kind of from my background and, and um, uh, something that, that we as an organization are working a lot against, and, and I see a lot of opportunity in crypto, is um, I, I get like this nagging feeling all the time as I'm listening to different crypto podcasts and seeing the kinds of people that are that are investing, um, that a lot of it is still coming from that like traditional TradFi accumulated wealth um, that is overwhelmingly coming from white people, coming from white men. Um, and when I talk to my friends that are people of color or, or in uh, uh, underprivileged communities or uh, transgender communities, you know, uh, folks that, you know, were already screwed over by the banks a long time ago, um, uh, a lot of them don't know anything about crypto. They don't know where to start. And and when I tell them, you know, oh, come join Bankless or come listen to these people, a lot of the time they're not finding people that speak directly to them in their community um, and and are kind of trusted trusted folks for them. And so I guess I'm wondering, uh, you know, I believe deeply that crypto is going to 
allow us to have this radical shift of wealth distribution where um, uh, people in, in different parts of the world, people in different communities are, are going to uh, have, you know, better wealth distribution. And so I just want to know from you guys, who, who are the protocols and the DAOs and the people that you know are actively trying to work towards um, getting more people of color, um, uh, different distributions of, of geography, um, to, to get people involved and, and getting them learning about it so that they can get in early. Yeah, yeah, this is a really, really important question, right? Because we're talking about uh, when we when we talk about crypto, everyone believes that who's in crypto believes that crypto is going to be like the next financial system, right? So it actually really, really matters who is actually bootstrapping these things because it kind of dictates what if we do believe that it's the next financial system, it definitely dictates like how this financial system will be will be kind of spun up, right? Like, and the, it does. We do have this very unfortunate problem where. Computer science as an industry is very like white male dominated. And then also like Wall Street is also white male dominated. Mm. And what is crypto mm. other than just like the intersection of like computer science and Wall Street, right? And like, I kind of think that these things aren't additive. They're actually like multiplicative. And so like when you have a white, two white male dominated industries, like it actually gets like orders of magnitude worse than rather than just like linear, linearly worse. The fortunate thing is, I would say two things, two things kind of ease my mind about this. Um, somebody said it in the chat, Gabion said, crypto does not see skin color in, in addition to like race, gender, identity. Uh, and like, yeah, your Ethereum address doesn't actually care who you are, right? Like where previously we had, uh, you know, people of color in the United States be just like relegated out of being able to own property due to racial discrimination laws. Like that's something that you actually cannot see in Ethereum that cannot happen. Right. And so like, there's a lot of like instantiated, instantiated systematized racism in, in our, in our pen and paper subjective type governance structures that we have in today's world. That's actually being like, just like literally just like technically removed from, from Ethereum oh, and from crypto at large. Right. So th that's a great, that's a great step. Now this foundation literally cannot see color and that's a great foundation. But then it goes back to the question of like, well, the people bootstrapping these things, well, these are generally like white males, right? Uh, and that's really what I find myself really um, resonating with the Ethereum community almost specifically, uh, because I, I, Ethereum has this culture of inclusion and is trying to take this, this issue head on. Uh, and w I remember when I was uh, at ETH Denver 2018, like listening to these talks, so many of these talks and so many of the panelists we're about focusing on this problem specifically. And so while that doesn't, it, well, that doesn't, it doesn't really just solve the problem of, of like having this distribution, this skewed distribution. It is different when like the community and the culture of this system that you're a part of, it really matters what the culture is because that culture also defines the, the direction of the future financial system, right? So Ethereum having this culture of inclusivity and openness can actually bleed out into a more opening and inclusive system. And again, that doesn't just solve the problem, but it really defines really defines how people feel included in a part of the financial system. Now that there are actual like specific efforts uh, for this, there's uh, SheFi, uh, which is founded by uh, uh, Maggie Love. If you guys uh, know her, she's a uh, goes to all the conferences. Um, SheFi.org is their website, and there there are just a number of other like. Um, uh, just organizations that are really meant to combat this problem specifically. I don't think that this is a 
a clear cut like so there is no going to be a, a clear cut solution like crypto is of all the things that crypto does fix it actually doesn't just does not fix wealth inequality it fixes systemic wealth inequality i think uh in ways that like if there is wealth inequality in at state one uh in the current financial system it's going to actually get worse but with ethereum it'll at least stay the same right it, the the crypto systems don't actually create further and further wealth inequality it at best just like eliminates changes but crypto like there's so many problems in this world crypto doesn't solve all of them it doesn't really solve um uh, wealth inequality and and the the current state of value distribution right because if we have all of this like racist capital that was generated by these racist means like they still have capital right they can still like these racist people that made a bunch of racist money can still buy buy ether right but at least we are moving into a more fair and true system at the end of the day um, do you know the other thing uh zachary to add to that that gives me hope is um new use cases honestly it's like um you know, De DeFi, I think, is is difficult uh, because, as David said, it's kind of an intersection of, like, tech meets Wall Street, right? And that's not great. Um, but some of the new use cases are a little bit different, right? So I, I was really pleased to see the new cohort of entrants in the whole NFT wave that we've seen over the last year. I was not Wall Street people. I mean, these are artists. These are, you know, creative economy workers. Um, another example is uh, Axie Infinity and the whole GameFi gaming economy, right? It's brought millions of Filipinos into the, uh, into the space and, and taught them about crypto. And what's their first bank account going to be? It's probably going to be an Ethereum address, probably going to be a, a DeFi account of some type. So I do have hope that some of these new use cases will actually bring new cohorts into the space, not only just bring them into the space, but also grant them additional wealth creation opportunities, right? It's like the people who did really well in uh, NFTs weren't the people who did really well on the DeFi side of things, or they weren't original like ETH investors necessarily, right? And so these new cohorts that, you know, these new use cases that bring these new cohorts, I think could be somewhat helpful to this problem too. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, thank you for the question. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, I actually do not have another question lined up. Uh, so in order to try and control a little bit of the chaos, if your name begins with zero through D, do you have a question? And David, uh, I might have to jump after this. This might be oh, the yeah. last Okay. This, this will be the last question. Yeah, this will be the last question. Anyone with the name zero through D wants to ask a question. Hey guys, uh, zero sum one. So uh, there you go. I, <laughs> He's got the zero. That's a good one for you. So uh, I asked the question about layer zero. I know you are a huge mm. proponents of that, and uh, I just saw the podcast uh, with uh, G Money, um, and uh, that was really moving. So uh, this is amazing first step uh to actually get the sense of community maybe face to face but uh, any plans to um level it up and uh, you know meet in person somewhere like i know david you are traveling to puerto rico so maybe just kind of i i'm still on the fence i might go there but uh um just curious you know just and you were in new york at nft.nyc I was there too, but we didn't meet. So I'm I'm just curious if you're you know popping up somewhere, uh, maybe there is a chance to do like bankless DAO, just bankless inner circle hangouts. 
Yeah, so there actually was a Bankless DAO event at NFT NYC. So that that that, that actually did happen, and and I actually think that these events are absolutely a, a ton of fun. And I, I think while my whole entire time at NFT NYC, it was a, a bunch of chaos, but it was really that Bankless DAO event that made me feel like very much at home because I just felt like a part of like everyone here is aligned with like what I care about and also listens to Bankless. So I know I know I can talk about stuff, specific Bankless stuff with them. So I like that. Uh, I'm a huge fan of spinning up as many in real life events as possible. Uh, I'm working on the Ethereum meetup for, for San Diego. And I maybe this is actually a great note to end on with anyone that is looking for Bankless people to talk to or just general crypto people to talk to, like take the initiative and, and take a, like make an in real life uh, meetup because I think at this point in time, crypto people, the COVID is beginning to become over, uh, and crypto is becoming more and more mainstream. People want to converse and talk about these things, uh, and so I think the in de the demand for in real life meetups is way higher than people expect it to be. And really, all you need is some shelling point of like, hey, where are we going to meet every like two weeks on six p.m. on a Wednesday? Um, and I so, think like you'll that, find bankless people all over the place. I too, think you right? will too, hundred percent. This, this, this is the initiative, and uh, I'm kind of still, you know, trying to figure out the DAO piece, right? So I'm obviously on the, you know, inner circle here, but uh, with DAO, I'm kind of in and out. I'm still, uh, 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 you know, trying to figure out that that game. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, guys, if you are, you know, I'm happy just to reach out. And uh, I actually just came back from San Diego just uh, yesterday. So and I'm between yeah. D.C. and Miami. So uh, and uh, it would be awesome just to and I'm planning to do the the uh, one in um, the permissionless uh, in Palm Beach. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's going to so, be so on that one. I get, we could definitely promise. So I'll be there in person to you and David will be there obviously because david goes to like Everything. many conferences <laughs> and, and but uh we're definitely going to throw a, a bankless um party meetup of some kind there for uh, like all the inner circle members bankless premium members we're gonna do something we haven't figured out what exactly but um you know if nothing else before then definitely at that event we'll all be hanging out and meeting in person this is awesome. awesome. And uh, David, I'll pin you. I mean, if uh, you have time in Puerto Rico, uh, I would love to. You whatever. Yeah, yeah. If you'll be at Metaverso, I can see you there. I'll be I'll be there all week. Yeah, yeah. I'm probably I will fly just for one day because, uh, yeah. But uh, thanks a lot. Really appreciate your time and all the insights. You are doing uh, amazing things, guys. Thank you. Hey, thank you, sir. All right, guys, this is going to have to wrap it up here. Uh, I really enjoyed this, actually, and, and I'm already looking forward to the next one. So, yeah, the next one will be the second to last week in December, the the second to last Friday. Uh, but moving forward, these will be the uh, ongoing every last Friday of the month. Uh, and so thank you, everyone. I this, The amount of people that are here is absolutely fantastic. I did not expect this many people here. Uh, so just thank you guys for showing up and asking your questions. And start thinking about the questions that you want to ask ask next week. Appreciate it, guys. You guys are the best. Uh, where's the, uh, what day is the Ethereum meetup? Uh, for, for when? For San Diego. I actually live oh. in San Diego. Here, let me put the Ethereum San Diego meetup link in here. I actually have not planned uh, a meetup. I'm still trying to find a venue. Uh, so if you want to help me find a venue, that's what I need. I, I, need next. I actually used to throw events in town, so I can help with that. That'd be fantastic. Cool. Awesome. I'll DM you. Coming into Office Hour Shatter. Awesome. Okay. Thanks, everyone. All right. Thank Logging you. Off. Peace, guys.